We're tackling one of the biggest issues facing America and the world today, and that's the growing threat of the Chinese Communist Party. They not only threatened American interests, but the values of freedom and self-governance worldwide. This episode tells the truth about those problems. Welcome to the inaugural episode of The Kevin Roberts Show. I'm Kevin Roberts, and we have a good one for you this week. We'll cover the important issue of China, including an excellent interview with Senator Tom Cotton. I'm looking forward to that conversation. First, I should introduce myself and let you know why we're doing this show. Yes, I do run the Heritage Foundation, one of the largest public policy groups in the world, perhaps the most influential in the country. But really, I'm just a dad. I'm a guy worried about the future of America, but also optimistic about the future of America. And that's why we're doing this show. We're going to have guests on each week who tell the truth. They're going to diagnose the problems facing us. But very importantly, they're going to give us solutions out of those problems so that America can flourish. We're going on offense. It's what we say here every day at the Heritage Foundation. And one of the ways we go on offense is by building coalitions of people, of groups on all of these problems so that we can solve them. And finally, we've got the winning message. We're going to help you communicate that. But that's enough about me. I want to hit the ground running. It's something we do every morning here at the Heritage Foundation. So for the first episode, we're tackling one of the biggest issues facing America and the world today, and that's the growing threat of the Chinese Communist Party. Even before COVID-19, China was irresponsible in its activities as a geopolitical global actor. They not only threatened American interests, but the values of freedom and self-governance worldwide. This episode tells the truth about those problems. The rise of China is a challenge, as you no doubt know, that will confront the United States for the next several decades. And therefore, every day, and including in this episode, the Heritage Foundation is exposing China's aggressive military and cyber capabilities, its gross violations of human rights, and its rising use of global economic coercion. I'm real excited for the interview that's coming up with Senator Tom Cotton. He's a great patriot from Arkansas. And also an interview with my friend and colleague, our heritage expert, Dean Chang. You'll enjoy both. But first, don't forget to subscribe to The Kevin Roberts Show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts, and give the show a five-star rating while you're at it. Your rating helps us to reach more people with our important message. Stay with us. I'll be right back with Senator Tom Cotton. Tired of hoax stories? There's plenty of evidence of collusion. Fed up with toxic partisan coverage? The attacks on me, quite frankly, are attacks on science. There is a better option. The Daily Signal delivers news that matters to you on culture, politics, and current events. Stay up to date on the real news of the day. Subscribe to the Daily Signal YouTube channel because you can handle the truth. We're joined on today's show by Senator Tom Cotton of Arkansas. Senator Cotton is one of our strongest leaders on China and a good friend and a former intern at the Heritage Foundation. Welcome, Senator Cotton. Let's start with the Olympics, if you're game for that. You and I both agree that China should never have been awarded the Olympics this year. And so if the decision had been yours, what would you have done differently? Well, you're right, Kevin, that China, uh, a communist state that's committing genocide against its own people, 
should have never gotten the Olympics um, administration. So both parties should have worked for years to prevent that from happening. Um, you know, in 2008, they got the Summer Olympics. That was considered to be kind of a coming out party for Beijing, in which they were going to move towards the West and become more free and politically open. Obviously, the exact opposite has happened since then. Uh, what I called for President Biden to do from the beginning of his tenure in office is to form a coalition of allies and partners to confront the International Olympic Committee and demand that these games be rebid to a free and democratic country. That would have been very easy to accomplish, Kevin. The Winter Games are far, far smaller uh, than are the Summer Games in terms of the number of sports and the number of medal events, the number of athletes. So it would have been very easy to relocate these games on, on relatively short notice uh, over the last year to some other country that has basic winter sports facilities, ice rinks, um, ski uh, slopes, and sledding facilities. Um, uh, unfortunately, President Biden didn't take that track, but even in the last couple of months before the uh, Olympics, I still feel that we should have done that given uh, China's draconian COVID-19 lockdowns. Um, we went forward with nothing but a, a a diplomatic boycott that obviously hasn't drawn really any attention in the world nor punished China. Uh, I called regrettably for our athletes for a full boycott because I don't think we had a plan to protect our athletes and I'm still very worried about our athletes safety. I, I hope that these Olympics conclude uh, later this week and that all of our athletes and their coaches and our staff leave the country safely and are not exploited for years to come. But I have my doubts. Well, and I'm glad you mentioned that because it's, it's a good segue into the next question I was going to ask you very much on my mind, you know, the minds of your constituents, Americans, is the surveillance issues. We know that they're going on. We know that there's, of course, social media censorship. You touched upon the possibility that our athletes might be surveilled upon, you know, years after they leave China this week. Of all of the stories that you've heard, what's the most alarming to you? In particular, a story that might really exemplify for viewers that this really is a genuine, real problem. It's not some fabrication of the American right. Well, I think the story of Peng Shui is probably uh, the most alarming story, Kevin. I mean, Peng Shui was a Chinese tennis star, um, and she accused a senior Communist Party official of sexual misconduct, and then she was disappeared, uh, only to be trotted out weeks later to say that she had been misunderstood and uh, no one, including this man, had done anything inappropriate. If the Chinese Communist Party will do that to their own citizens, to their own stars, what might they do to an American athlete uh, who protests on a medal stand um, or who does some other action that's contrary to the Marxist views of the Chinese Communist Party? It's so dangerous, in fact, that Nancy Pelosi, of all people, told her athletes not to say anything critical of China. She said, as is sometimes criticized in our own country when conservatives observe that NBA stars are in the pocket of China and um, refused to stand up to them, shut up and dribble. So that's basically what she said to our athletes. She is so worried uh, about their concern. Shut up and ski or, or skate or curl or play hockey or what have you. Um, there's still several days left to go in this Olympics. Uh, we have many Americans still competing, so I'm very worried uh, about their safety should they do anything the Chinese Communist Party considers to be hostile. Uh, but as you say, this could expose them to a lifetime of surveillance and exploitation. You know, our FBI had to recommend that our athletes take burner phones and devices. Uh, I think a lot of them did. Maybe not all of them did. Maybe they used the same passwords for their uh, devices they left behind. I'm very worried about that kind of 
um, all-encompassing electronic surveillance. I'm worried about them exporting the DNA of our athletes for years to come uh, under the uh, pretext of coronavirus tests, having collected their DNA and added it to the massive databases that uh, they are collecting. Um, I mean, you just saw last week when Emmanuel Macron went to visit Vladimir Putin. He said it end of that very long table in no small part because he refused to take a Russian COVID test because he didn't want to turn his DNA over to Vladimir Putin. But that's what our athletes have had to do uh, over the last couple of weeks. Uh, so I'm still very worried uh, about our athletes. Um, again, I, I hope they all get out safety safely later this week and they aren't exposed to a lifetime of surveillance and exploitation. That's why we should have never put them in this place to begin with, though. No, I agree entirely. And, and I want to follow up momentarily about something you mentioned regarding Vladimir Putin. But before I get that, just a question about the home front. I've been asked the following question a lot. I've been curious to see what you think. You referenced Speaker Pelosi talking about shutting up and dribbling. The question I've gotten from friends of heritage is, how is it that the Speaker of the House and others, other elected officials, can be so blind to the reality in front of them? Is it is it the world of conspiracy theory or is it just the world of ignorance, just having a certain blindness to the evils of China? Well, I think in many cases, they're representing the interests of the China lobby here in America. Unfortunately, uh, China and its uh, growing uh, economy has spread its tentacles throughout American society to the extent that they have a, a vast and influential lobby uh, in the corridors of power in Washington. I mean, there was a time uh, during the trade negotiations with China and the Trump administration when China's lead negotiator convened a meeting, I should say demanded a meeting, with the leaders of all the major Wall Street banks uh, before he went to the White House later that day, in essence, demanding that they put pressure on the White House and on Congress to try to cut a better deal with China. You see it in Hollywood. Uh, there's a new book out called Red Carpet, appropriately, red being the color of communist parties everywhere, and China's influence in Hollywood, uh, noting that uh, the uh, remake of Red Dawn famously was made with China as the bad guy in it, but it was recut at the last minute. So China wouldn't be a bad guy. And there's never been a movie produced in Hollywood for more than 10 years that had China as the bad guy, unlike Russia during the Cold War. That's because Hollywood is deeply, deeply in the pocket of Beijing, both for money to fund its own movie production, but also to get uh, market access in China. Likewise, giant corporations that have outsourced so much of their basic manufacturing, not only costing jobs here at home, but also giving China more influence uh, in corporate America, which then gets reflected in Washington as well. So I, I can tell you there is a, a large and influential China lobby in Washington. And I think a lot of politicians are simply responding to the lobbying they're hearing. They hear about not being tough on China. A follow up question on that. We will get to the, the sort of twin problem of Russia and China and, and their leaders, respectively, showing this this show of unification. But what, how do we fix that problem of the, the China lobby? You know, Peter Schweitzer has a, a great new book out where he, he advocates for some changes in D.C. heritage, as we will talk about for the next months and years, uh, unfortunately. In other words, it would be nice if we could fix this sooner. What would you recommend change about the reality of the China lobby here in D.C.? Well, first and most simply, we have to recognize it and call it what it is. Mm -hmm. um, if you're an executive at a major Wall Street bank, at a Hollywood studio, at a major manufacturing company that's outsourced production to China, if you're a university president who depends on Chinese students coming here and paying full freight, uh, we need to, to state publicly that you are in effect becoming a lobbyist for the Chinese Communist Party. 
And then second, we need to take steps to cut off those positions of influence. This is why I call in a major report I released last year for strategic decoupling of our economies. We never had the kind of economic entanglement with Soviet Russia during the Cold War that we have with communist China today. That gives communist China vast points of pressure and influence in our political system. And only, only when we take away those points of pressure, when we disentangle our economy on the strategic basis of China's economy, can we begin to reduce the influence it has in our political system? And that would be challenging enough. That is the, the power and influence that China has. But of course, we have this other reality, and, and we understand that news is changing by the day when it comes to the actions of Vladimir Putin. They showed that the leader of, of Russia, leader of China, a tremendous uh, show of unification at the beginning of the Olympics, and that has continued. Obviously, that's something that ought to concern Americans. But given your expertise, I just want to pitch that question to you to explain in some detail for our viewers why that is such a problem for America and the world. Well, uh, what you saw in that show of unity uh, with Vladimir Putin and Xi Jinping at the opening ceremonies of the Olympics in Beijing is two like-minded authoritarians um, who have a common interest in opposing the United States and undermining our influence and strength around the world, whether it's military, economic, political, diplomatic, or what have you. Uh, neither one of them, Vladimir Putin or Xi Jinping, are satisfied with a world in which you have strong, free market, democratic countries aligned with the United States, whether it's countries like Poland or United Kingdom in Europe, or countries like Japan and South Korea in the Western Pacific. And they want to do everything they can to undermine a system that for 75 years has contributed so much to America's safety and our prosperity and our freedom. Um, they have their differences. China and Russia always have. They always will. Um, I have my doubts about them ever becoming outright allies for a variety of reasons. But those two authoritarians recognize that it's in their interest to undermine America wherever they can. And, and historically, as, as you know better than most, one of the factors that has prevented China and Russia from becoming outright allies, and, and we agree with you, we, we see that as not being likely, is that the United States has been not just forceful, but also very artful in preventing that from happening. I'll, I'll be polite about it and say we're not seeing either that force or that savvy from President Biden. And what would you recommend if he were willing to listen to you and, and say, take two or three ideas from you that he do differently so that we're addressing the, that joint problem of Russia and China more, more effectively? Well, I don't think that you could see a, a so-called Nixon to China moment mm -hmm. um, in which we try to peel off, say, Russia away from China, um, because that was a very specific moment in time in the 1970s where, where China was worried about Soviet Russian aggression. They also wanted to develop their economy and knew a way to do that was to align themselves with the United States against Soviet Russia. Vladimir Putin and Xi Jinping now are, they are both deeply invested in undermining America and undermining an American-led international order. Um, but what we could do is be more forceful with both of those countries and make it clear that we are not going to stand idly by while our interests are undermined. Now, some of that is already in the past, and unfortunately we can't unwind what Joe Biden did in his first year in office. Just look what he did with Russia, for instance. In his very first week, he extended, with no concessions from Russia whatsoever, 
a very one-sided nuclear arms control treaty. That was Vladimir Putin's number one foreign policy priority. He got it for free from Joe Biden. Just a few months later, he waived sanctions on the Nord Stream 2 pipeline, which takes gas through the Baltic Sea from Russia to Germany, thereby by allowing Russia to put more pressure on Ukraine. Again, Joe Biden did that without any concessions from Vladimir Putin. The colonial pipeline hack occurred with either the knowledge or at least the tacit permission of the Russian government. We took very few steps uh, to impose consequences for that. And then, of course, Vladimir Putin, Xi Jinping, the Ayatollahs, everyone in the world saw the debacle in Afghanistan and the weakness it exposed uh, in uh, Joe Biden. Uh, so there's a lot of things that have already happened that we can't take back. But what we can do is make it very clear that whatever is the end game in Ukraine, uh, we are going to stand by our NATO Article 5 commitments to countries like Poland and Hungary on Ukraine's border. And we are not going to let Xi Jinping exploit a crisis in Europe to undermine our position in the Western Pacific, especially not allow him to pressure and ultimately try to invade Ukraine or invade Taiwan the way Vladimir Putin appears to want to do in Ukraine. And it's a legitimate concern. And so I'm, I'm, that is the link between Russia's expansionism in Eastern Europe and, and the obvious expansionism that, that China, frankly, has around the world, especially in its own backyard relative to Taiwan. And so thanks, Senator, for covering the foreign policy side of this. I'm curious if we might combine that in a previous response you had regarding the, the Chinese lobbying efforts here in D.C. with a related but separate question, and that is the larger question of the influence of the Chinese Communist Party on the American economy. What can we do to minimize that in the coming years? Well, as I've said, I've called for a strategic decoupling. It's we don't have to try to get exactly to where we were with the uh, with Soviet Russia during the Cold War. But we do need to make sure that China doesn't have the kind of influence and pressure points it does over our economy today. Um, some of that is influence through big business and Wall Street. Some of it is that they just have the market corner or certain critical goods. Now, these may be very high end goods, um, like, say, rare earth elements or they may be very basic inputs to vital products like uh, pharmaceutical ingredients. Let me take those in turn. Rare earth elements are in a way misnamed because there's really nothing rare about them. It's not like China sits on top of them, no one else does in the world. Uh, they are all around the place. What's rare is the mining and the manufacturing of them. We outsourced that to China years ago. That was deeply foolish because it's not just vital for things like advanced stealth fighters and bombers. It's vital for the computers that we're on today, the smartphones you have in your pockets. Almost every modern device is vital for them. So we need to make sure that we bring that mining manufacturing capabilities out of China and back to the United States and our partner nations. Advanced pharmaceutical ingredients. Uh, again, these are not cutting edge technologies. These are things that can be manufactured anywhere. But if we allow a hostile communist country like China to make all of our ibuprofen or all of our acetaminophen, all of our penicillin, they can use that as leverage against us. In some cases, they did use basic medical supplies as leverage against the United States and against other countries in the beginning of the pandemic they unleashed on the world. Uh, so we need to identify the sectors of our economy in which we are most exposed to Chinese pressure, and we need to take immediate and urgent steps to reduce that pressure right away. Look, I'd like to see all the jobs that have gone to China over the years come back to the United States, or at least 
trade and those jobs with friendly nations. If we don't make our T-shirts here in the United States, though, if those continue to be made in China, that's one thing. But if all of our penicillin and all of rare earth elements and medical supplies like masks and gloves are made in China, that's a horse of a different color. Well, it sure is. And, and that actually is great setup for the final question, because during the especially the beginning phases of the coronavirus pandemic, we understood for the first time, many Americans understood for the first time, the limitations that America has when it comes to China. That is the dependence that we have on them for certain materials, including masks and, and pharmaceutical supplies. The question is this. Will we ever hold the Chinese Communist Party accountable for their role in the coronavirus pandemic? If I have anything to do with it, we will, Kevin. I mean, first off, uh, I've introduced legislation uh, modeled on the 9-11 legislation that brought justice for their victims to allow Americans to hold Chinese Communist Party officials responsible uh, in American courts for what they did. It's almost certain that this virus came out of a Chinese laboratory. We don't know the circumstances of it, but every bit of evidence we have points to that. The people who were responsible for that laboratory, who hid that information, who lied to the world about it, who covered up data that could have saved lives early in this pandemic should be responsible. But more broadly, a lot of the steps we're talking about could be used as ways to hold China accountable. The last thing the Chinese Communist Party wants to see is the United States reshoring a lot of the manufacturing that went to China over the last 20 years. There's some simple ways to do that. In some cases, we can just forbid the trade in goods with China if, if items are so critical, like rare earth elements. There's other things we can do, like repealing China's permanent most favored nation status, which is what supercharged American investment in China that sent our factories and our manufacturing jobs to China. That's the last thing the Chinese Communist Party wants to see. So those things, steps are good in their own rights, but there are also ways that we can say we are going to hold the Chinese Communist Party Party accountable for unleashing this plague on the world. Well, thank you again to Senator Cotton for making time out of his busy schedule to join us. Next up for the Kevin Roberts Show, we have Heritage Scholar Dean Chang in the house. You're not going to want to miss it, so stick with us. The genocide of religious minorities and forcing its own citizens into slave labor. Using military force to bully our allies in Southeast Asia. Covering up the CCP's role in unleashing the COVID-19 pandemic. Espionage in America. China is a threat unlike any we have faced before. Confronting China must be our top priority. The Heritage Foundation continues to expose the dangers China poses to American interests, national security, and human rights. Learn more at heritage.org China. Welcome back. We're going to have a rotation for you. Some weeks we'll bring movement allies to talk how we can work better together. Other weeks we'll have practical tips from our friends at Heritage Action. But this week we have my colleague and friend at the Heritage Foundation, Dean Chang. Dean serves as a senior research fellow on Chinese political and security affairs. He specializes in China's military and foreign policy, its relationship with the rest of Asia and with the United States. Most of all, he's an all around great guy and patriot. Dean, thanks for joining me. Thank you for having me. So there really is not another person in America who knows what you do about the threat from China. You're a modest guy, so you're probably going to say, Kevin, don't say that. But it's a real treat for our audience in this first episode of this show to have you on. 
And so I have a, some questions for you, and you know that, of course, you can tackle those topics. You, you can say some other things as well. But the first question is, we just heard from Senator Cotton, who, by the way, is also very good. And I, I don't think he would disagree with my assessment about your intelligence on these things. He outlined the threats facing the United States from China. From your vantage point, what are the latest developments in China regarding their military capabilities? I think we need to understand how comprehensively China is building up its military. So we see a modernized ground forces, which has gotten a lot less attention. We see two stealth fighter programs in their air force. We see an aircraft carrier, multiple surface combatants, one of the world's largest submarine fleets. But in addition to that, we see, for example, China developing space capabilities. Just recently, they had a satellite grapple another satellite and throw it into a higher orbit, uh, something that um, is actually very difficult to do. We see Chinese cyber intrusions everywhere, commercially, government, military, etc. And then we see in the areas of support forces, the ability to sustain a conflict, not just start one, everything from logistics to electronic mm -hmm. warfare. So we are seeing a soup to nuts development effort. And so of all of those threats, if you were to, to our capabilities, if you were to pull out one for our audience to seize upon and understand as perhaps the most pressing, the most urgent, which would you identify? Well, that's always a difficult one. Of It's sort of like picking your favorite uh, pet or your favorite child. Um, what I would say is that probably in the cyber domain, mm -hmm. simply because it permeates so many different aspects and because it is attacking the individual American. When you send your DNA off to be tested, a lot of those tests are actually being conducted in China. And that means they have your genetic data to put alongside your credit history and your health data. Um, that, is, that is a very comprehensive picture they're building on just about every American. It's, it's alarming. And it's also very alarming if you're in Taiwan. So for our audience who I assume understands the threat from China. They, they no doubt hear a lot about China's aggression toward Taiwan. And your expertise, what's your assessment about China's ultimate goal there? The Chinese in this case actually are very transparent. Mm. They have said repeatedly, a core interest, meaning something that they are willing to fight over, is territorial integrity and national sovereignty. To their mind, Taiwan is part of China as much as Hawaii or Key West is part of the United States. And to their mind, it is inevitable that Taiwan will be reunified. It's just a matter of do they have to use force, which they are prepared to do, or will they achieve it peacefully, which they would prefer to do. Any sense, Dean, of the timeline of that? And, and by that, I mean, for the average American who's paying attention to the news, they're trying to get a sense of when there might be an inflection point and the relationship between China and Taiwan. Have any good read on that? So I don't think it's going to happen at the closing ceremonies of the Winter Olympics. <laughs> That's kind of where I was going with that. You know how I think. <laughs> um, invasions, especially across some of the worst water in the world, this is 100 hmm. miles of, of very rough water, is something that you don't just sort of do next week on the whim. Uh, if you think about how long it took to plan the Normandy invasion, mm -hmm. that was two years, and that was in the middle of a war. Mm -hmm. So, and the Chinese themselves would say their military is at this moment not fully modernized, what they term is fully mechanized, fully informationized, and fully intelligenceized. Uh, terrible translation, but there it is. Um, I think most folks would assume that um, 
say in the 2027 timeframe is when the PLA will have hit its own marks of how, when will we be fully ready? So I'd say between then and the end of the decade is probably the period of greatest danger, partly because the Chinese military will be fully modernized, but also partly because we are not investing enough in our own defense. Right. And in some ways, some of our equipment will be at its oldest and most in need of being replaced, or new programs will have only just started coming online. Is that point about the growing contrast between Chinese capabilities militarily and American capabilities militarily, especially true regarding space? And by that, I mean China's testing hypersonic weapons. I know that we are as well, but I'm interested in your assessment about that and what in particular the United States ought to be doing that it isn't in order to meet that particular part of the threat. So the good news is we have stood up the U.S. Space Force, mm -hmm. and that's a service. So we are going to train, equip, and provide forces capable of fighting in space. The bad news is um, we only stood that up about three years ago, and the Chinese stood theirs up in 2015. So they're actually ahead of us in this. The other thing to think about here is that one of the things that you realize when you start looking below the surface, you can't run away. Uh, people sort of say, well, couldn't space be a sanctuary? Isn't it terrible to take conflict into the heavens? And the reality is that every environment that man has gone into has become a warfighting environment. But running away from the enemy's killer satellites and, and directed energy weapons doesn't work because mm -hmm. there's no terrain in space. There's no place to hide. So the only way to therefore keep the Chinese and other countries like Russia deterred is to have a comparable set of both offensive and defensive capabilities to protect your own satellites and to keep the adversaries under threat. Um, in a strange way, it's a little bit like the mutual shore destruction aspect of the nuclear phase of the Cold War. Um, the Chinese and the Russians have openly tested anti-satellite weapons. We are behind. We are. And the other, it seems to me, correct me if I'm mistaken, that the United States is also behind when it comes to shoring up allies or, or shoring up just partners in geopolitics. And, and in particular, what I'm thinking about is how aggressive China has been in Africa in particular. For our audience who may be paying more attention to the threat that China poses Taiwan or poses the United States in particular, speak about Africa, perhaps even Latin America. We've had a head of state here recently talking about this threat in particular. So the Chinese efforts in Africa and South America are much more economic than military, mm -hmm. but that doesn't make it any less of a threat to us. Uh, the Chinese pose a very comprehensive challenge, in part because they have a state-owned enterprise system that doesn't have to pay attention to bottom lines. They can invest in places that will never see a penny of profit, but will further Chinese political goals. We, on the other hand, too often think, well, we'll do joint military exercises and establish bases and things like that. And that, that matters. But we need also economic, political, diplomatic ties to there. The good news is American enterprise, free enterprise, is thousands of corporations, all of whom are seen as carrying the flag. The bad news is that when you look at all the regulatory overload and other things that are on there, you wind up with companies spending more time filling out paperwork than thinking about their future strategy about how to invest in Africa or South America. No, that's well said. But what I like about that response, because the last question is going to hopefully point us towards some optimism, which I know you share, is that you are at least cautiously optimistic about the United States meeting this threat. But let's do something we do at the Heritage Foundation and project out five years, 10 years. 
we have won or at least met this threat from the Chinese. What are the key steps that the United States has taken to do that, just in, in terms of summary for our audience? Well, uh, my biggest hope is that we will keep our own financial house in order mm -hmm. um, because the bigger the debt, the bigger the debt servicing, the more it crowds out the discretionary spending, which is what defense spending and other things are. Um, I'm hoping that we have, again, um, taken up policies like rescinding regulations two for one, three for one, so that American innovation, uh, people like Elon Musk, are able to really just do things that once upon a time were in the pages of science fiction magazines. Mm -hmm. And by the way, you'll notice there's a reason space entrepreneurs open companies in America and not in China, but also not in Europe. Um, and then finally, I'm hoping that we will have worked in coordination with our allies who will also have woken up to confront this challenge, not only in the material, military, economic sense, but also in terms of principles and human rights and things uh, when it comes to dealing with Moscow and Beijing. Thanks for that response. Dean Chang, thanks so much for being with me today and for your work that you do for us and for America every day. Stay right here. We'll be right back. Big tech is out of control. If they can silence the sitting president, what can they do to you? The Heritage Foundation has been on the front lines fighting for free speech. We spotlight big tech censorship, demand reform, and help you fight for your rights. Heritage was the first conservative organization to reject big tech's money because this is too important. We won't be silenced. That's going to be it for this week's show. I want to again thank my guests, Senator Tom Cotton and Dean Chang. Don't forget to subscribe to The Kevin Roberts Show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcast, and give the show a five-star rating while you're at it. And tell a friend. Our movement is for everybody, and all are welcome. We'll see you next week. Mm -hmm.